It's the clash between two cultures, two superpowers who were completely different in outlook. And they spoke the same language, they had the same religion, but their whole thinking and, and way of behaving was, was very different. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And today I'm taking you back to the ancient world and the fifth century BC and a clash between the two great city-states of Athens and Sparta. And I'm talking to Gordon Corrigan today and he is making the argument that there are tipping points in history and he's written a trilogy of books, the first two of which we're discussing today. Firstly, during the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta and the Battle of Aegispotami, which he pronounces Aegispotami, just in case you're not sure which one's which during the chat. They're both the same. And he argues that we would be living in a completely different world had that gone the other way. We then go on to discuss the American Civil War and again, a moment in that conflict, the Battle of Atlanta, gone another way. We could be living in a completely different world with two United States of America, not one. And so there are a few links that I'm going to put in the show notes that we discuss throughout. Uh, for the American Civil War, there's a very good documentary on this U.S. Civil War by Ken Burns. It's called The American Civil War, and it used to be on Netflix, so it might, I think it's moved, but I'm going to put a link in just to remind you, try and hunt it out wherever you get your um, TV um, from. And then I'll also put a couple of links in for the Peloponnesian War. One is there's a great book that we mention by David Stuttard, all about Alcibiades. His book is called Nemesis. And then I'll, of course, link in all of Gordon's, the trilogy of books. And next week, we go on to discuss a massive event. And that was the invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany. And again, another tip, tipping point. Now, elsewhere at Aspects of History, it's Easter now. So I am putting on offer an Easter offer, which you can gift as well. We have our annual subscription of our magazine containing many great historians and, and historical fiction authors. Bernard Cornwall, Max Hastings to name but two, Margaret Macmillan, the great historian and recent giver of the Wreath Lectures. It's not that recent, it's 2018. And normally it is only at nine ninety nine for an annual subscription, but with the voucher code which i've put in the show notes it's history 50 percent. you'll get the annual subscription for only five pounds for an entire year i've also got a couple of articles that i thought would interest listeners one is a, a longer read london origins of a modern city by leo hollis and it's very good on the history of london and in particular mary davis a woman from the 17th century who was treated very badly and then another piece, we've got a very nice piece on Ukraine. It's called Souvenirs from Kiev. It's written by a Ukrainian-American called Kristina Luchik-Berger. And she's written a series of short stories uh, around Ukraine. 
And I'll put that link in there too, because that's interesting. But enough of me banging on. I'm going to hand you over now to me talking with Gordon Corrigan, kicking off with the Peloponnesian War. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, Gordon Corrigan, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, now, we're here to talk to you today about a trilogy of books. They're sort of very short history books, and they cover tipping points in history, moments where if the result of a battle had gone the other way, then we could all be living in a different world. So I wanted to talk to you um, about each of these. And so for our listeners, we we are going to cover three uh, massive conflicts really the first is the Peloponnesian War the second is the American Civil War and then finally we're looking at World War II and the Eastern Front um, so Gordon just to start off we'll start with the Peloponnesian War and and, with, and this is the Battle of Aegis-Potomai in 405 BC so Gordon could you give our listeners, some may not be familiar with what the Peloponnesian War was, where it was, who was involved. Would you mind just doing a sort of overview? Yes, of course. It was a battle between the two superpowers of the Mediterranean, uh, the superpowers of the world, if you like, at that time. Um, the Delian League, which was led by Athens, and the Peloponnesian League, which was led by Sparta. Now, these were two very, very different cultures. Um, we think of Athens as the cradle of democracy, not, of course, democracy as we know it today. Athens was a slave state, as indeed was everybody else at that time. Uh, but there was genuine democracy in that if you were a free citizen uh, and your, your parents were free citizens and you had done your military service, you were entitled to a vote. And they all did. And the something like um, 40,000 eligible voters, only males, by the way, um, then elected a committee, and it was a huge committee. The committee was about 7,000 strong, and everything was debated. Um, there was a, a debating point. There was a, a rock, actually, which the speaker stood on, and they debated everything, domestic policy, foreign policy, taxation, um, whether they should go to war, whether they should not go to war, if they did go to war, who, who should command, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, so I think to say it's a cradle of democracy is, is quite fair, remembering that it wasn't quite as democratic as... as Perhaps we are. Um, Sparta, on the other hand, was completely different. Sparta was very much a military organization. It was everything was geared to waging war. Um, every male Spartan was taken away from his parents. Uh, well, first of all, when he was born, he was taken out and examined uh, by, a, by a council who said, yes, he looks, he looks okay. And if there was anything wrong, I mean, if there was a, a blemish or, or a disability of some sort, that child was generally put out on the, on the fields at night and the wolves came and scoffed him. Um, then from a very early age, the age of seven, uh, they were taken away from their parents. They went into a barracks and they underwent military training. Um, it wasn't entirely military training. They had to learn how to sing, for example. I'm not quite sure what relevance that has to warfare, but in any way. Um, and they were also taught a certain amount of rhetoric. Now, rhetoric was, was very important to both 
Greek states or both Greek organizations, because there was no such thing as Greece in those days. It was a collection of city-states. Uh, and the Delian League were city-states that allied themselves to Athens, which was the richest uh, country in the world at that time, certainly the richest country in the Mediterranean. Uh, it made its money uh, largely by trade. Uh, its navy dominated the Mediterranean. It was the naval superpower par excellence. Um, Sparta, uh, on the other hand, was purely a land power. They had, they they did have some ships that that they used to trade, but essentially they were a they were a land power, um, taken away from the parents, military training, and they did that. And they weren't allowed to marry uh, until they were thirty, um, and even then. Uh, they didn't see see their wives all that often. Now, eventually, of course, they were released and they went back and, and lived with their, with their families. One of the things they were worried about was the birth rate, because if you're in a barracks, an all-male barracks, and even after you've married, you don't see your wife very often, um, there, is, there is a problem. Um, not only that, but um, Spartans were reluctant to have too many children because the Spartan uh, system uh, was that whatever land you owned was divided up amongst your sons. So if you had too many sons, uh, eventually they ended up with a piece of land that really wasn't worth anything. So they're, they're, they're soldiers, that's virtually all they are. Uh, they were not allowed to take part in any um, artisan type work, all that sort of work, the work in the fields, uh, smelting of metal, all that sort of stuff uh, was done, in fact, by slaves. Um, now, they were, they were pro probably the term serf would be nearer to slaves because they did have um, some rights. Um, they could marry, uh, they could uh, buy land if they had the money, they could eventually buy their own freedom. Um, but they were the people who did all the work. Uh, now, I've said that Sparta was a military organization as it was. But they were very reluctant to go out of Sparta to, for too long, because if the army goes away, there's the risk um, of the helots, the, the, the serfs, rising. There'd been a number of revolutions, risings by the helots, which had been put down pretty, pretty savagely. But there was always this concern about if you went away for too long, what's going to happen? And it took some time during the Peloponnesian War, which goes on from 431 right on to 404. Uh, BC. It goes on for ages. There are a number of truces and, and periods of peace, but essentially it's the same war. Um, and it's some time before the Spartans uh, arrive at a system which will allow them to keep an army in the field away from home for any length of time. So, so that it's, it's the clash between two cultures, two superpowers who were completely different in outlook. And, and they spoke the same language, they had the same religion, but their whole thinking and, and way of behaving was, was very different. And this conflict that, as you say, went on for 27 years, there were sort of plenty of ups and downs on both sides. Uh, but it's interesting that Athens was the naval power, as you've mentioned with their, the Delian League, and the Spartans were more of a land-based power. But what's funny during that war is that Athens gets has a number of successes on land and, and the Spartans have a number of successes uh, on the sea. Um, but, but how do we get from, um, from there to sort of close to, to, to the, to the events of the battle of Aegis Potomai? The basic problem was, and yes, Athens did have some successes on land, not, not very many, but it's usually when they greatly outnumbered Spartan outposts. Um, 
And it's quite a long time before the Spartans start having any success at sea. I mean, essentially, Sparta wins all the land battles, um, but they cannot win the war because when the Athenians get a kicking, they pull back into Athens, which is a walled city, and the walls go all the way down to Piraeus, which is their port. So they've been beaten back into Athens, sit there, resupplied uh, through Piraeus by the Athenian navy, which rules the Mediterranean, and they can sit there until the Spartans get fed up and go home. And that, that happens time and time again. And it's not until it takes a rather long time that the Spartans come to the conclusion that actually, if you can't beat them, perhaps we'd better join them and perhaps we'd better uh, build a navy. And um, they, they took a huge loan from their traditional enemy, the traditional enemy of all the Greek states, which was Persia. Because Lysander, who was the Spartan, Spartan soldier, general and admiral, um, had uh, come to, he, he made friends with, uh, with Cyrus the Younger. That's not Cyrus the Great. This is, this is the younger son or, or the, the son of the Persian emperor. Um, and they, they're quite friendly. And um, Cyrus lends Lysander the money to build the fleet. And they need a huge amount of money. Uh, I mean, they need, they need a port to do it. Uh, they actually do most of it in Ephesus, uh, which is on the uh, main, uh, Asian mainland. It's, it's uh, part of the Persian area. Um, they, they have to get the timber. They have to get the metalsmiths to create, make the bronze, to make the various bits and pieces, rope, rope walks to make the ropes, all the rest of building a fleet. And it takes them a long time. Um, but eventually they, they do build a fleet. Um, and although... Uh, some of their initial naval engagements are, are pretty unsuccessful. Uh, they do learn the business pretty quickly. Uh, and that final battle, uh, I guess with Tommy, is where both fleets uh, meet. They're both roughly the same size. And essentially, they are waiting for one of them to make a mistake, make an error. And it could have been either way. It could have gone either way. Now, the problem about uh, naval warfare in this period is that the type of ships which both sides used, they were triremes, and there were three banks of oars. They were very narrow. They were very manoeuvrable. They weren't terribly good in rough weather, but in, in good weather, very manoeuvrable and quite speedy, about seven, seven or eight knots, um, uh, possibly 10 knots if they, for a very short period. Um, but the, there was only room on the ships for, for the crew. The crew was about 140 people in these three banks. Um, and all you could carry was, was the chaps pulling their oars and huge quantities of water, because what they were doing is very, very thirsty. They couldn't sleep on the ship uh, and they didn't have room for rations. So every night you, got, you carried your boat ashore. And if you've got a crew of 140, you can, you can lift the thing up and carry it and you beach it. And then you either go and buy food or forage for food or take food and you sleep. And uh, first thing in the morning, back into the water. So it was a question of which navy could be caught on the beach. And what actually happened was that the Spartans, uh, this happens in the Dardanelles, and the Spartans are watching what, what happens. They've got OPs on the shore. They're, they're watching what's, got, what's going on. From the Athenian point of view, um, they think that if they send a little small squadron, just a few ships, down the Dardanelles towards the ocean, that the Spartans will come out and attack it. 
And when they've done that, the rest of the Athenian fleet could come and take the Spartans, Spartan fleet from the rear. The Spartans were just a bit too clever to fall for that one. And they didn't. And instead of going after this little squadron, they headed up the Dardanelles and they caught the Athenian fleet on the beach. So the battle actually happens on land and they, they slaughter them. Um, and what's important is that they slaughter the Athenian sailors, the experienced sailors, the experienced masters, the experienced navigators and whatnot, and they burn their ships. And they're citizens as well, aren't they? They're, they're... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, the the non-Greeks, and there were some non-Greeks, um, are allowed to go free, but they kill the, the Greek citizen, the Athenian. Sorry, I keep using the word Greek. They, they, Greek doesn't really have a meaning then. They kill the Athenians, and they then sail off to Athens. And the Athenians think, well, what's the problem? We'll just sit inside our walls and be resupplied. And eventually the word comes back that you aren't going to be resupplied, old chap, because you haven't got a navy anymore. And, of course, Athens then ultimately has to surrender. And in the Spartans go, they destroy the walls. That's the end of democracy. We'll have none of this nonsense of people having a vote. You'll jolly well do what you're told. Um, it's the end of the glory that was Greece. Um, the, the country is devastated. The olive groves have been burnt down. The mines haven't been able to be worked. Uh, buildings have been destroyed. The currency is worthless. Trade has dried up. And the result, of course, of that is that the Macedonians, who are regarded by most Athenians and indeed Spartans uh, as barbarians, uh, they come in um, initially under Philip of Madison, Madison, Macedon. <laughs> they conquer the whole of Greece except for Sparta. Um, there is a tale, which may or may not be true, that when Philip said that um, if he had to attack Sparta, the result would be appalling if he had to attack them. And the Spartans apparently sent a message back saying if. Uh, but that may or may not be true. Uh, and then of course, uh, under Alexander, Philip's son, Alexander the Great, as he became, uh, then of course, Sparta was conquered as well. And Alexander went, went east, as we know, uh, couldn't get across the Indus and eventually comes back and, and dies in um, Baghdad, I think, on the way back. Um, now, the point about Babylon, that, I think, yeah. Upside Babylon, you're absolutely right, Babylon, um, after a bino of some proportions, apparently. Now, the point about that is that this allowed Rome to develop as the ultimately the superpower. Um, had the Battle of Agispotami gone the other way, which it terribly easily could have done, it was absolutely on a knife edge. Well, if- I was going to ask you just quickly on that. Mm. Had a character perhaps been listened to, who I, I, I get the sense having read your book, Alcibiades mm. is, is who I'm talking about here, who's this sort of yeah. rather, he, he's a terrible rogue, but he's a brilliant commander and he's a very controversial figure in Athenian circles. Um, well, actually beyond, but um, he has an intervention just prior to the battle, uh, which actually we should mention where it is. It's up up at the Hellespont, isn't it? Um, you turned on bells. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so Alcibiades makes an appearance, but I got the sense that you're not a huge fan of Alcibiades. Is that correct? <laughs> Alcibiades was a complete bounder. Um, he was a highly competent 
soldier, no question about that. Uh, he was, of course, he was enormously rich, a very rich family, ultimately marries the daughter of another very rich man. Um, he's a bit of a playboy as a youngster. Um, he, he's terribly rich, very spoiled, doesn't care what damage he does to anybody because he's got the money. And then he realizes that actually what he wants is power. And he's, there are two ways of getting power. One is in the assembly, of course, persuading the assembly of, of Greek Athenian citizens to, to vote for him, and also for cultivating the great men. And he, he does that very assiduously, he, he cultivates. Now, there's a, so he's, he's an accepted Athenian, important person, important politically, um, and important militarily. And he's, he was a good, as a young officer, he showed a lot of courage in this war. Well, then there's the Peace of Nicias, as it's called in 421 BC, so-called because of the name of the Greek um, politician who, who negotiated it. And that uh, treaty was supposed to last for 50 years, last for 50 years. Now, you would have thought that everybody would welcome that. People who didn't welcome it uh, were people whose property had been destroyed. And now they've got no chance of getting it back from the, getting reparations from the Spartans. And the young men who haven't been able to show their prowess in battle. And Alcibiades um, hooks his wagon to the to the to the war party, uh, and and it is the war party that, that wins, uh, and and we're off to, to war again. Um, he was then uh, deputed by the assembly to lead an expedition to Sicily, uh, where the Athenians were unwisely, in, in my view, widening the war. And the day before they were due to sail. Um, there was some vandalism to statues of the gods in, in Athens. And initially people thought, well, it's just a few drunks coming home from the Athenian equivalent of the pub. Uh, and then they discovered that, that all over the city, these statues had been defaced. And somebody said, and there's no evidence that I'm aware of at all. So I said, oh, well, this is Alcibiades. It's, it's, all, it's, it's him. Because he had an awful lot of enemies. I mean, inevitably, he'd, he'd, he'd on his crawl up the greasy pole, he'd made a lot of enemies. Um, and he liked to and drink. So, and he liked to drink. Um, mind you, most Greeks did, yes. but not, um, not, the, not spirits. I mean, basically, it was wine they, they drank. But he, um, so, so he was told, right, you are going to be put on trial, but not until you finish the Sicilian campaign, which was really an extraordinary thing to say. Because when he got to Sicily, um, sometime later, a, a ship arrived uh, from Athens saying, um, you're under arrest, old chap, and you're to come back to Athens to stand trial. And he said, certainly, yes, right, old gov, or whatever they say, got in his ship. He said, I'll follow you back. Of course, he didn't elect it. Um, and he then took, uh, changed his coat, started working for the Spartans. And he fell out with the Spartans because he had a liaison with the wife of one of the kings. The Spartans had two kings. There was only one at this stage because the other one had been exiled. Um, so that, that was that. So the Spartans are now after him. Uh, so he manages to worm his way back uh, into uh, Athenian good books again. But when he gives this warning, nobody believes him. Nobody trusts him. You know, he's, he's a very good soldier, highly competent soldier. But who's he actually working for? Because he works for the Persians. At one stage, he actually works for the Persians. Um, and, and so he's constantly changing his coat. Nobody believes him. Nobody trusts him. And in fact, of course, he was assassinated after the war. He thought he was safe. He, he pushed off into Anatolia, but he, he was actually assassinated. So he's a fascinating character. Um, he'd probably be very amusing company at a dinner party. 
I'm not sure you'd want him commanding your army because you wouldn't be quite sure which, which side he'd, he'd, uh, he'd hook himself up to. Absolutely. Well, he makes a great appearance in, in Plato's Symposium. And, and there's a really, I don't, there's a very good book recently by David Stuttard, who, who's written all about Alcibiades called Nemesis, which I'll recommend to our listeners as well. I'll put mm. the link in for that. Yeah, he's a fantastic character. So, yes, yeah, so this battle, I guess your argument then is that had it gone the other way, we wouldn't be looking at a we'd be looking at a sort of a, an Athenian fourth century as opposed to a Macedonian fourth century. Well, I think we would. And and um, I think if if it had gone the other way, Athens would have been able to resist if the Macedonian invasion even happened, because Philip of Macedon had said he would only invade uh, if Athens was was weak. Um, and, and of course, Athens wouldn't have been the walls would have still been there. Either the Macedonian invasion wouldn't have happened, or if it had happened, I think it would have been defeated. Um, and Rome would go on being a Greek colony, uh, in, a Greek-dominated colony in Italy, and we would be the subject of a, a Greek world and not a Roman world. I mean, currently, we're the products of a Roman world. Our language, our religion, our uh, ways of doing things um, is, is devolved from, from Rome. Now, if Athens had won, that sort of... Um, baby democracy, if you'd like, um, might have developed. Uh, maybe the world would have developed into a sort of kinder, more, more tolerant place. Um, one doesn't know. I mean, I'm not... A kinder, gentler, a kinder, gentler yeah, politics. I, I, it's, it's possible, it's possible, isn't it? Um, certainly Rome would not have developed into the superpower that she, that she was. Um, and, and of course, Alexander had gone east anyway. Um, mm. Perhaps if he'd gone west, it might have been different but um, yeah that's that's basically my argument i mean the great thing about this battle this war is um we know an awful lot about it now you might say how can you possibly know anything that happened way back but the contemporary sources exist they're with us they've survived which a lot of sources didn't i mean thucydides um he wrote a history of the war right up into 411 he died in 411 um xenophon then started in 411 and and wrote the rest of the history and they were there they, they were they were they were there um people like um uh, oh um plutarch writing much much later plutarch's lives but he had access to sources that that are now gone we haven't seen them uh so he writes uh, about lysander the, the greek admiral general who who wins wins the battle i guess um and there are others um who've succeeded i mean people say herodotus is the father of history I, I dispute that. I think Thucydides should be the father of history because Herodotus believed that the gods affected what happens. Thucydides says what happens is due to the actions of men, has nothing to do with the gods, which actually is quite a brave thing to say in those days. Um, but as I say, these, these um, uh, you know, the, these, I mean, Aristophanes, who didn't really write much about the war, um, but he tells us an awful about, a lot about contemporary life in Athens. I mean, he gets away with things that you'd get locked up for now. I mean, he's constantly uh, satirizing politicians, rulers, generals. Uh, he, he keeps saying that war is a waste of time. Um, he's very influential even now, Gordon. Uh, the Lysistrata yeah. and, and the, the suspension of sex for, for the men folk yes. has yes. been mentioned by many feminists now as a, a yeah. potential yeah. strategy. It never actually happened, but that's what he said. He said, look, girls, you know, give up. <laughs> don't, don't give your men any sex and the war will stop. Um, 
that was never actually going to happen, but it was, I mean, it was intended as a satirical thing. Mm. Yeah, still is good. Well, I I was interested in, um, we'll move on to the Civil War uh, soon because uh, we've got a lot to get through. But um, I was interested because there are a number of battles in that uh, involving Athens in the fifth century that one could, uh, and even a, a little bit later, um, one could could see a sort of a different world. Had, for example, the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC when the Persians invaded Athens, could that have snuffed democracy out? Do you think before it even? I, I, well, I think actually quite interesting because the the two um, uh, Persian invasions. Uh, now you would have thought that the Persian steamroller has got to win. I mean, the Persians. But you've got a small, much smaller people, and this is where the Athenians and the Spartans do actually cooperate against the external enemy. Um, you've got a very small little nation, but determined to defend its own territory uh, against an external foe, which is much, much bigger, but possibly not quite the same motivation. Now, there are, uh, there are analogies to what's happening now there. Um, on both occasions, and I think the Persians simply thought um, yeah, you know, if we keep going, we, we will win. But what's the point? It's not worth the candle. Um, so, so I mean, that, that is what happened. They, they, that was the last time the Persians tried to invade Europe. Um, and it was a time when Athens and Sparta, well, not so much on the first invasion, but certainly on the second, but Athens and Spartan, Sparta uh, cooperated. So they were capable of cooperating against a, an external enemy. And once, of course, the Persian, the final second Persian invasion had been defeated, then they revert to squabbling amongst themselves. Um, that was always the challenge with those city states, wasn't it? They they could never uh, always arguing. There's the, the and then and then finally I was I was looking um, at the Battle of Chironia in three three eight BC hmm. when you have uh, Philip and Alexander on his left wing, I think, up against the Athenians and the Thebans. Hmm. Had that gone the other way and the Athenians and Thebans won. Where would we be? Then that might have been the end of Alexander's empire. I just don't think it, they were going to win. I mean, the, the Athens had been still terribly badly weakened. Uh, the Thebans were known mercenaries. I mean, they were they were they were good soldiers. Um, but I don't see that battle being able to go the other way. I mean, it, it just wasn't balanced finely enough. I, I think it, unless they unless the Macedonians did something bloody stupid, uh, they were never going to lose. I don't think. Right. So now we'll move on to the civil war. Now, mm. um, my knowledge, I, I'm my knowledge is severely lacking. I'm limited to a excellent sort of I think it's an eight part documentary by Ken Burns. Um, ah, yes. Yes. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, I'll, I'll stick a link in in there as well. But um, so so that's the extent of my knowledge. And mm. um, we've got the Battle of Atlanta, eighteen sixty four, July. So we've had four years of civil war. Um, yeah. Yes. So so are you going to try and sum up the American Civil War for the first right. four years? Okay. Everybody thinks that this was a war about slavery. It wasn't. Slavery was was a, a factor. Um, but this was a war between two very different cultures. Uh, the go-ahead, get-up-and-go industrial north or industrialising north and the agricultural south. Um, Lincoln only uh, issues his proclamation freeing the slaves, not for any moral reason. He does it to destroy 
the southern economy because the southern economy is based on manpower intensive agriculture, uh, tobacco, cotton and, and the rest. Um, so it, 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 it starts off with has a state got the right to secede from the union? After all, it had voluntarily joined the union. Can it voluntarily secede from the union? Um, and and this, this, was, this was the legal, the great sort of legal argument. Um, and for quite some time, uh, even with states removing themselves from the union, it need not have ended in war. The trouble was that the population on both sides wanted war. Neither government did. Neither the government of the Confederate states, as they called themselves, the, the states that succeeded, uh, nor the government of, of the Union uh, wanted war. But their population did, and the press did. It's probably the first war where the press really has an influence. Um, and, and so they, they, they find themselves at, at war. I mean, Fort Sumter is always said to be the first shot. Um, and the problem that the Union had was that the South was over a thousand miles from, from north to, to south. Um, and the deeper the Union armies got into the South, the more difficult it was to resupply them and the more likely they were to have the lines of communication cut off. The, the South didn't have to win the war. They just had to avoid losing it. And there are a lot of battles. The, the, the better generals initially were on the side of the South. Because so, the sorry South... to interrupt you, Gordon. Does hmm. that, when you say the South didn't have to lose it, didn't have to win it, they just didn't have, they didn't need to lose it. Does that mean that they basically had to operate a defensive? Yes, that is what it was initially. Uh, Jefferson Davis and a number of his generals wanted to do. They said, look, let, let the Union come in, come in, come in, come in, and we'll give up, give up ground, give up ground, give up ground. And when they have come so far in, we'll cut off their lines of communication and we'll starve them out. Now, that would have made a lot of sense. I mean, that, that was a, a sensible war policy, given the different the population of the North was far greater than it was of the South. Uh, the assets of the North, the railways, factories and the rest, uh, much greater than, than what was available to the to the south so that would have been a sensible policy unfortunately it's not what the people of the south wanted they wanted to go in and sock <laughs> these these awful northerners um the war I mean, of uh, northern aggression well yeah i mean uh, i well remember when we had it when i was a company commander at Sandhurst, we had a uh, an academic from the university of southern mississippi uh, who was on a sort of attachment and we thought that he's the obvious chap to teach the american civil war till we discovered that what he about halfway through he was teaching the war of northern aggression so we had to say right sorry you know <laughs> you're you're off <laughs> we put in a brit who could you know yeah my, my brother-in-law is from alabama who and he jokingly calls it the war of northern aggression yeah, yeah that's what they call it yes and i mean it's still there those those fault lines are still there um, I mean, you've been reading, I mean, as you know, very recently, the, uh, there's a campaign to remove the statues of um, uh, Indeed. generals um, and, all, and all that sort of thing. Um, so it, th there's no question that the best general on either side was, was Robert E. Lee. Um, Robert E. Lee was a Virginian. Virginia, of course, seceded. Um, the commander-in-chief of the Union forces uh, said to Lee, 
who was in a colonel, look, we want, you will command the Union Army. Uh, because he knew that Lee was, was the, the best officer they had. And Lee said, no, I have to go with my state. I mean, one forgets that loyalty was very local in, in those days. I mean, there were people who thought, uh, you know, we're, we're citizens of America, the United States. But an awful lot of people saw their main loyalty being to their state. Um, and, and a lot of um, officers in the army of the United States were from the South, because traditionally that's what young men who didn't inherit the plantation or didn't inherit the land, that's, that's what they did. They became officers. Um, it was a bit, it was sort of Prussia or East Prussia or, or Ireland <laughs> equivalent of, if you like. Um, and so initially, uh, the really good guys were, were in the South. Uh, of course, that, that, the, the Northerners get better and better as the war goes on. So it's, it's, really, it's pretty indecisive for those, those first few years. And it's not until they, the Union uh, realise that, that um, what they've got to do is, is strangle, strangle the South. They've got to get control of the Mississippi, the river. Now, that cuts the South in, in two. And they, they managed to, to do that. They capture uh, New Orleans from, from the sea. And um, uh, Sherman is, is driving into driving into into the south, um, and the general, the southern general, he's up against Joseph Johnson, is a very sensible fellow, and he knows he can't beat Sherman in the field. Sherman's army is much bigger; its administration is much better. They've sorted out the logistic problems. Uh, so what he's got to do is delay. So what he will do is he'll take up a good defensive position. He, this means that Sherman has to deploy. Johnson will then push off and do the same thing again. So it's a, the Northern advance is very, very, very slow. There is by then war weariness in the North, desertion from the Union armies. Um, there are riots against the proclamation freeing the slaves because the, a lot of the Northerners are worried that if all the Southern slaves are freed, there's going to be a massive influx into the North. And, and that worries them. Um, and it particularly worries the, the working classes who can see that their jobs may be taken by somebody who's prepared to do the job for less. So there is all this going on. There are riots against the draft because conscription has been brought in. Um, you know, is this war ever going to end? Now, Johnson... Um, realizes that the election is coming up in November. And by September, um, everybody, the press, such opinion polls as there were, and their opinion polls actually, funnily enough, were quite sophisticated. Um, their, their methodology was, was almost modern, if you like. Um, and they all said, Link is going to lose the election because he's running for a second term. The Democrat opponent um, is a chap called McClellan, who'd been sacked, he was the Northern general um, and turned out to be totally incompetent. Um, but was he sacked. totally incompetent? Because he was quite, he, did, he didn't want to uh, face the Union, the, the Confederate troops head on, did he? He well, was he, very he, reluctant to go into battle because he's, well, I'm probably yeah. being very kind to him, but, uh, but he didn't want to waste his men, did he? Well, no, but he, he, he totally, he's constantly thinking that the, the Southern armies are far bigger and far more powerful than they actually are. And Lincoln keeps saying, you know, get on with it, get on with it, get on with it, and he won't. 
um, there were loads of opportunities where he could have uh, led an offensive, uh, and, and he didn't. Well, the one occasion he does, he gets gets beaten. But um, no, I, I would I would describe him as incompetent. If he was one of mine, I would sack him. No question <laughs> about that. Um, but um, so the election, of course, coming up in November, presidential election. Everybody says McClellan will win in a canter. He will trot up. Uh, and even Lincoln himself says, I'm, he's on record as saying, I, I cannot win this election. I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose this election. And there are problems with his wife who's run up enormous debts and, and she's um, trying to persuade people to, to lend her money to pay them off because she thinks if we lose the election, then all the people who we owe money to are going to close in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when Johnson eventually, having delayed Sherman, delayed, 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 uh, pulls into um, Atlanta, all he's got to do is sit there, defend it, which he can easily do. Uh, Atlanta was a good defensive uh, position to be in, and wait for the election in November. And McClellan was running on a peace, a make peace platform, cashing in on this war weariness and everything else. So if the Democrats win, they will make peace. And if that happens, there'll be two Americas. And they one cannot ever see them ever actually uniting again. Anyway, Johnson knows that. So he's got to stay in Atlanta. And he resists occasion. Some of his younger officers say, let's go out and have a crack at the chairman. He says, no, 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 we, we cannot take him on in the open field, but we can defend. And all we've got to do is sit here and wait till the election in November. And he falls out with Jefferson Davis, who's the president of the Confederacy. Now, Jefferson Davis had been uh, a minister of the Union government, um, maybe the Secretary of Defence. Uh, he wasn't a fool, but he was a very uh, sensitive soul. And he'd had an, a stupid argument with Johnson. Johnson was being very stupid. And the argument was one of seniority. Johnson is saying, look, uh, when we all came south, uh, when we were all in the Union Army, I was senior to Lee, um, but you made Lee a full general before me, and I should actually be senior to Lee. It was a silly, stupid, pointless argument. They were all full generals. Um, the, the Union didn't uh, promote anybody above lieutenant general, but the Confederacy had full generals. They were all full generals. Um, they're all getting the same pay, if that mattered. Um, they all had the same influence. They're all commanding armies. Um, but Johnson thinks he should be senior. And um, Jefferson eventually gets fed up uh, with this letters that he's writing in saying, you know, what about my seniority? And he sacks him. And he puts in Hood, John B. Hood. Now, Hood is a get up and go character. He's not a defensive general. And he thinks he'll have a crack at Sherman. So he sends a large portion of his army out of Atlanta to try and get behind Sherman. He's beaten. That's it. He can no longer hold Atlanta. And eventually he has to pull out and Sherman captures Atlanta, which if Johnson had been there, he wouldn't have done. Um, and then in the north, suddenly people think, well, because ah, the siege has been going on for ages and ages and ages, but perhaps this war can be won. Perhaps Lincoln is, is right after all. And there's a complete change of, of opinion, public opinion in the North. Um, and Lincoln wins the election. So he's the president for a second 
term. He is quite clever because his vice president is a Democrat. And he does that deliberately because he wants a union ticket, if you like, of, of both, both political parties. Uh, the result is, of course, uh, that the war goes on and the union wins. And there is one United States of America. Link, there were, after the surrender, when Lee eventually surrenders, uh, some of the um, Confederate generals uh, think, ah, Lincoln's been assassinated. Now, this was not something I don't believe that the Confederate government had anything to do with that. Um, Lee's been assassinated. The vice president will now take over. He's a Democrat. So if we can just hang on, don't surrender, then things will change. Of course, they didn't because the vice president stuck with the same policies as Lincoln. So <clears throat> we've got one United States of America. Had Jefferson not sacked Joseph Johnson, it is my view that he would have held there uh, the election would have come along, and I think it's reasonable to say that McClellan would have won. And their manifesto, the Democrats' manifesto, was make peace. And McClellan no, himself, McClellan himself wanted to pursue the war, didn't he? He, he, he personally was... did, but his party mm. wouldn't wear it. Uh, so he had to sign up to the, uh, the party's manifesto. Um, yes, he, he thought that they should go on with the war, but... Um, that was not the view of the party and the caucus, which which put him up as their candidate. And he, of course, then had to go along with the policy of the, of the, of the party, if you like. Yes, he did. He did. Um, he wanted the war to go on, but he wouldn't have been able to. Um, and those two, I cannot. I mean, you know yourself, we all do. Those of us who go to America, huge difference between the people in the north and people in the south. It's, it's still a very different culture, very different way of looking at things. I don't, I don't see them ever being united. So I don't think there would ever have been the the, um, the superpower, the American superpower, you know, policemen of the world, as they were until fairly recently. Um, but that's that's my view. I mean, again, you know, well, your book's be, fantastic because it it gives a it, it gives a great little um, potted history of the expansion of America, which. Mm. Um, I mean, if you want to um, read something in a, just a few short pages, it, it really does capture it, it. You know, you get the um, you cover all the the incorporation of those Midwestern states. And then there's Texas, the Mexican brief, brief bit on the Mexican American War and then California, which, you know, one, one looks at the United States today and just sort of assumes it just sort of grew and grew and grew. But it, it, it's more interesting than that. And, um, yeah, it, it certainly whetted my appetite to find out more. Well, I wanted to, to explain the background. I mean, I think in all of these things, we're all a bit inclined just to look at what's happening now. And really, we have to put things into context, uh, which is why I always try and explain the background, you know, how we got to where we are now, uh, which I think is helpful. Mm. Mm. So right, so we've we've done the Civil War now. Um, mm -hmm. In very well done. That was in fifteen minutes. In, in, very impressive. <laughs> I can go um, on for weeks if you like. <laughs> so I do hope you enjoyed that. Part two coming up next week is the big one. It's Stalingrad and the clash between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. And as I mentioned at the start, I'll be putting I links into the show notes for the things that we discussed today. And as well, don't forget the offer. As ever, you can get hold of me on the Twitter. I'm at Ollie WCQ. 
And if you can subscribe, I'd be enormously grateful. It really helps us out, really helps us continue to do these. And if you can even leave a review, that would be that would be amazing. But with that, I'll leave you to your nice Easter Sunday, roast lamb, rosemary. That's how it's done down my way. But I hope you enjoy yours and I'll speak to you next week. Thank you and good night.